My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the staff pastors here on, uh, at church as well, and I get to work with Danielle too. Look at that. We're all the same. You know what's so funny about a week like Vacation Bible School, and I don't know about if you experience this too, there's this weird thing about being human where one moment you feel so full of joy and so feel full of life and so full of peace, and then something else will happen and you feel so full of rage and anger, and there's like this dark side that just kind of can overwhelm and take over. I don't know if that's ever happened to you or if you ever experienced that, but as some of you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a news junkie. I, I love watching the news and reading about the news and understanding what's going on in the world, and uh, it's wild, right? I mean, it's just wild. Everyone is so mad. Everyone is so angry, and probably rightly so, but I mean, it is overwhelming. And then what's crazy is I realize it's not even just the world. Like you look and you're like, man, everyone's so bad, so mad. But it just can't be everyone. I get, actually, is it me too? Is it the people around us? Because when we interact, we kind of rub shoulders and we think, no, I'm so full of joy. But there's these deep, dark things inside of us that we experience, that we experience anger and rage and we just get so mad. And so what I want you to do is uh, in front of you is a paper, uh, is a little card. I want you to take a little card and I'd love you to take a little pen. And I would just love you to think about if you could be reflected for one second, think, man, what? just makes you so mad. What are you angry about? You're not going to share with anybody. But I think about, I mean, there's so many things to be mad about. If you, if you watch the news, I mean, there's plenty that's going on politically that you're like, I am so angry about this. So much going on in our culture that you just be like, oh, I'm so angry about this. We all are humans, which means we interact with other human beings. And so there might be someone in your life and I am so angry at them. So I'm just going to give you 30 seconds. Why don't you just think about what just what came to your mind? What came to your head? What are you angry about? Okay, when you look on your car, when you think about the things that cause you anger, I don't want you to tell me what those are because that might be embarrassing for you or for me if I'm one of those people. Um, but if you had to distill it down, what, what do you think the theme is? What are some things that actually cause anger in us? What do you think? This is where you can interact if you can shout something out. What? Fear. Fear, yep. What? Hate. Hate. Yep. Justice. Justice, yep. Or injustice, right? Pain. Lies. Waste. Waste, yep. There's so many things, I think, that cause anger to rise up in us. And what's interesting is, as I've been reflecting this week and writing down my list of all the things that I'm angry about, I think that the way I would sum it up is that there is, it's an injustice, right? There, there's some sort of offense, whether that offense is to me or to someone I love or to someone I care about or to my faith that I love. And, and because of this injustice, those things, like there's anger in there. And part of that anger is rooted in fear and hatred and all those other things. Now, what's crazy is there's actually this power in anger, but then there's even more power if that anger is attached to the things of God, to the thing we call righteous anger, right? So we have anger. We feel angry towards things and towards people, and usually that's because our rights have been violated in some way or someone's rights have been violated. But when we hitch that onto God and onto the things of God, all of a sudden our anger has like even more power because I'm not just mad for me. I'm mad for the things of God. I mean, imagine how powerful that is. I came across this, this quote, and I just think it sums it up great. It says, Our anger is righteous when we're angered over evil that profanes God's holiness and perverts his goodness. And so when we, as an individual 
or as a family or as a church or as a culture, when we step into and step on things that profane the name of God, the things of God, the values of God, right? That, that upsets God. There's anger there that God's wrath is like pointed towards that. And we like hitch our wagons to that and we go, yes, I'm angry. I'm angry with the anger of righteous anger with God. And, uh, and it feels good and we want to be on, on those sides. But the real question is, what in the world do we do with it? I think that's a real emotion. Anger is a real thing. It's an important emotion. It says a lot about who you are. There's a, it's important to understand that there's things that grieve God's heart and anger God. And we want to be about the, the redemption of those things and the solving of those things. But we need to figure out as Christians, what are we going to do as people of God? How do we navigate? How do we move towards the things of God without causing more death and destruction? So I want to share with you this passage of scripture. There's a, uh, in the Bible, um, King David, he was, a, he was an important king uh, at the, the height of the, the reign of Israel. And, uh, and he, um, he had this streak where, he, I mean, he loved God. He's a man after God's own heart. And so when things offended God, they offended him. And he was someone who was known. He would just get angry so fast. Well, the prophet Nathan comes to him one day and he tells him this story. I'm going to read it to you. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord said to Nathan, said, sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There are two men in a certain town. One is rich and one is poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except the little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it until it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank in his cup, and it even slept in his arms. This little ewe lamb was like a daughter to him. Well, now a traveler came to this rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking his own sheep and cattle to, to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So instead, this rich man, he goes and takes the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he kills it, he slaughters it, and he prepares it uh, for the one who had come. Now David burned with anger against this man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And you know, David is just like amped up. He's like, I'm the king. No one's going to mess with some poor little ewe farmer and I'm going to use all the weight of the king and he is going to die. Which if he dies, how's he going to pay it back four times? I didn't get that part. But you just, you know, when you're angry, you're just like, I'll do whatever it takes. But then Nathan said, you are that man. And I think that statement is the most horrifying statement in all of Scripture because we love to be angry. We love when our anger is linked to the things of God and we are justified in our anger, which there are plenty of things to be justified. But the human condition has this thing where we can get so hopped up on our anger that we forget that you are the man. You are that woman. All of those things that you are so angry about frustrated about, and you think of, see all the injustice without even realizing it, God is like, you are actually that person. What is crazy is that there's this deceiving power in anger. There's part of it that is true, and it is right, and it is noble, and we are linked into the things of God. But there's this deceiving power. What happens when we get angry, all of a sudden it taps into our adrenaline. And like, we love adrenaline. It feels so good. You know, it's like it, it, it limits what we can do and what we can think about. And it's like, we just need to survive. You know, it's like you either going to fight or you're going to flight. All the other details that are happening around the world, you forget about and you're just focused on this one thing. It's like this broken mirror. You don't even get a clear picture anymore. You just see this one small thing and you see it and you zero in on it. 
In anger, we zero in on it and we actually forget and we miss out on actually what God wants us to do. And so while I think it's right to be linked up in our anger, it's right to be angry about the things that anger God. Before we can even do the things that God calls us to do, we need to recognize and own that there's probably a good chance that we are that woman, that we are that man. In James 1, he he makes it really clear. He says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. For everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So while there is this thing called righteous anger, anger actually does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And that's what he needs from us. He needs us to be righteous. So I have a couple different case studies I wanted to share with you. Excuse me, my wife's downstairs, so she's not going to hear this part. But it was like six years ago. Um, and I don't know if you've been married or if you've ever been really connected to another human being. And I think that's hard. It's this hard thing where God would take two broken people and put them together and say, now do life perfectly. It's hard work. Well, about six years ago, we were in one of those little seasons where it was really hard. I mean, really hard. And, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I mean, I can't walk away. I can't, I, I, you know, I have to make it work. We have to present well to our church family. I'm like, this is, but this is too hard. And I don't know, if, and as I got more and more hard, it became very clear to me what the problem was. And you know what the problem was? It was Katie. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm a good man. I love my wife and I've thought really clear about it. I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I didn't want to be the man. So I worked really hard. I prayed really hard. I was really reflective thinking, okay, I'm going to own my stuff, but let's be honest. It is Katie. And, um, and I was really, I was really I was, like, this is no joke. I was really um, disturbed by that realization and what that meant for me and my marriage and for my life and ministry. And, uh, and I was at a denominational meeting, and, uh, and I, one of my dear friends and mentor, her name's Marty Berger, I said, hey, listen, I just need a pastor. I need, I need to just share some things with you, and I need you to be my pastor. And so we, uh, we went out... Um, we went outside and found a little place that was private enough so, so I could share. And I said, listen, you know me, I'm a good man and I'm a great husband and I have all these things for her that I want God to do. But my wife, she's, she's not doing her job. She's not pulling her weight. And, uh, and the, like, no joke, like I thought like for a week leading up to this, like what I was going to say, and I mean, it was measured and it was clear and I just laid out my case in a very noble way, I thought. And no joke, she looks at me and says, you are that man. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was so in my moment. I was so hurt and I was so full of anger. I was, my, my perception was so messed up. I couldn't even see. I thought I owned my stuff. And it wasn't until this older, wiser woman just said, you are that man. You are the one that needs to go to counseling. You're the one who needs to get your crap together because everything you just said to me, I cannot believe that just came out of your mouth. It was hard to hear. I'm, not, I'm sort of laughing now. I'm scared when Katie listens to this tape later. But, but isn't that crazy, right? I had real anger, real hurt. There were some real hard things that were going on and I was on the side of God and I wanted to do the right thing. And even in me, all wanting to do the right thing, I still, my perception was so wrong and I missed it. And so ever since that time, I've been really thoughtful. I'm trying to get my head around what in the world do we do? I don't want to be that person who does that all the time. And, and, and I had, I mean, I have opportunities to do that very regularly, but this came up 
You know, a couple weeks ago when you're watching the news and, uh, and all those kids are being separated at the border, and this is really complex, horrific political situation and humanitarian situation. It's horrific. And I know what I think, and I know what causes anger in me, and I get all angry, and I'm on the side of God because I, he cares for the weak and the powerless, and I'm on his side. But what, like, what did I have to own? Like, before I could just yell and go crazy and let the whole world know how noble I am, what, if I, what do I really have to own? And, uh, and because I have great friends on both sides of the political aisle, I, I feel like I can enter in both sides a little bit. I mean, I'm still biased for sure. But I know for some of my conservative friends and the conservative part of me that leans, I realize, like, there actually is this racism in me. And there's this classism in me. And there's a culture that I love and I enjoy that I don't want to be ruined. And, and, and I don't know what, there's an unknownness about it all. And what about the rule of law? And, and, and there's a violation that I, that I, that I want to lean into. And, I, and so it, in that anger, I, I know there's parts of it that are mine that I need to wrestle with and think about what, what is mine in that. And some of my more liberal progressive friends and the things that I want to wrestle with and lean into that, for them, it's like, as I listen, I think, there's actually some vengeance in you, right? It's, there's resentment, not about these poor kids, but it feels good because the, the enemy of who makes this look bad, like it makes Trump look so bad and we hate Trump. And so, so it, it feels good to have the, 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 you know, all of the culture pointing, making this guy look so bad, and that feels so good. And, and so there's this anger that actually has nothing to do with these kids because where did I care about that you know, six months ago, right? It's so complex. And everything is like that. Every single thing we touch, relationally, socially, politically, everything is like that. And we are so quick to be angry that we don't make space for God to own our part of it. Now, Jesus was super clear and gives us a really great teaching. And then we're actually going to get to the psalm, I promise you. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All of us have such great vision when it comes to the speck in other people's eyes. I mean, we are brilliant at it. I mean, we could go out to coffee, any one of you, give me a call, I will tell you the speck in your eye, no problem. It's a gift, right? But that is not what Jesus says. He says, listen, you have a log in your eye. Whatever you see that drives a fence in that other person, whatever you see in that other person that is driving you crazy, it makes you so angry. You were watching that person just steamroll people, cause death and destruction. That pales in comparison to the log that is in your own eye. Imagine the prophet Nathan sitting down to you and saying, you are that woman. You are that man. None of us want that. None of us sit in that. None of us are willing to be in a position where we are willing to open ourselves up to really allow the magnifying glass to be put on ourselves to deal with the log in our own eye. And as I wrestled with this this week, I thought about, I know very clearly all the specks and all the death and destruction that other people's specks cause to me, to the people I love, to our culture, to the, to the, to the things of God. I see that so clearly. But if, if those are all specks and I have a log in my own eye, then what kind of damage am I causing? What kind of hurt am I doing? What kind of ways am I steamrolling people? And I'm totally blind to it because I am so focused on the specks of other people. Now, in all of this, 
God's not saying we do nothing, right? There is a part where God longs for us to be part of his plan. God longs for his church to be the people who do the things of God, who bring his righteousness, who bring his hope, his redemption, his healing, his grace, his mercy to the weak and the poor and the powerless forever and ever. God longs for his people to do that, but we cannot do that until we take the log out of our own eye. We take the log out of our own eye. We do the spiritual work and then we can see clearly. So now we're going to finally get to the psalm. If you have a Bible, um, we're going we're gonna to go through Psalm 51 together. So if you have a Bible, turn it right in the middle, and somewhere in the middle of the Bible is the Psalms, and in the Psalms is 51. Now, this is an incredible psalm. It's powerful, it's deep, it's challenging. But what's interesting is we live in a culture and in a time when we do not know how to do confession. Confession is not what we do. Like, even growing up, when we used to do youth ministry all the time, and like there was a prayer, it was an Acts prayer. You do adoration and then confession, thanksgiving and supplication. Like, there was a way we taught students all the time that you don't have a time with God unless you also include confession. If you grew up in a liturgical church, right, part of the liturgy was the, conf- was the prayers of confession. Sometimes you read them together, right? In the Catholic tradition, you actually went to somebody regularly and confessed your sins. And we live in a context where it's about my rights. It's my thing. It's, my, it's what I deserve and who's offended me and who needs to forgive me. But as Christians, as maturing people who know and love Jesus, we need to reclaim this idea of confession and walk the well-worn path because there's no movement towards Christ. There's no movement towards spiritual maturity unless we take this part seriously. So we're going to really quickly just crank through Psalm 51 because I think there's some parts of this psalm that I think helps to make a rhythm of what confession should look like for us in our lives so that we can be the whole people that God longs for us to be, so that we can be about the things that God longs for us to be about. It begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassions, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so I love this way this even begins. The the starting point, the posture towards God is have mercy on me. And what mercy means is that you are about to be punished. You did something wrong. You know you did something wrong. And there's a punishment waiting for you. And you're saying, have mercy. I know there's punishment coming, but take that punishment away. Have mercy on me. And why? According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. All throughout scriptures, even in the Old Testament, it is dripping with the love of God, with the way God loves us. He cares for us. And not just us, even our enemies. Ooh, Like God loves humans. He loves people. And because of his love for us, we, have the, we can be brave to come to him and say, have mercy. goes on in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your, right, in, in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. For surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I love it. It begins right there. For I know my transgressions and I know my sin is before me. And as a good evangelical who grew up with the Acts prayer, 
Grew up Presbyterian, saying the prayer of confession every Sunday. Confession is part of my rhythm. It's part of my diet. I'm not scared of it. I know how to do it. And even this week, as I sat down, I thought, do I know my transgressions? Like, have I gotten so far out of the habit that I don't even know what my transgressions are anymore? I mean, I know my big sins that I always pray, forgive me about this, forgive me about this. But am I aware of the small and daily slights that crush other people, that violates God's righteousness, that violates God's call on my life? Am I willing to be quiet and reflective enough to even know what those are? And I was horrified to realize I am so far out of the rhythm that it took like some serious work to actually begin to get to a point to go, oh yeah, there's some stuff that I need to own that's going on in my world and in my life. For I know my transgressions are before me. So we say, God, have mercy on me. And when we, because we can approach God because he loves us and there is no more punishment because that punishment's been taken care of Jesus, that we have no fear of punishment, we have total access because of love, then we can recognize that we, God has exposed us, that God sees us in all of our sin, for we know our transgressions. And then he goes on in verse 7. For cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. That there's a ceremonial cleaning. There's a real cleaning that happens. That we actually, when we confess our sins to God, when we show up and we know our transgressions, and we say, here is my garbage, that God cleanses us. Right? It's like being so dirty and so gross. And like, especially little kids, they have no idea how to clean themselves. You know, like they go shower and they don't shower, right? There's still like food and dirt and garbage. Like, like we don't know how to clean, but God says, listen, I will clean you. Our job is just to identify our sin and God's like, okay, done. I will clean you. And when we're clean, we can be used and be used by God for other things. Verse 10, it goes on, it says, Then create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So not only do we want God to have mercy on us, not only are we saying, God, expose me and reveal my sin, then cleanse me. I love it. I think it's in Colossians where it talks about we don't just ask God to cleanse us from our, our sin, but we actually want God to renew and, and transform our, our minds, and then we can like, and then clothe us with Christ. That there's this process that goes through. We'd always talk about this in student ministry because they get a kick out of it, but it's the idea of you walk into a shower and you take off all your dirty clothes and God cleanses you. But then you don't, you don't just leave the shower and like enjoy being clean and naked the rest of your day, right? No, you have to put on something else. You put on this clothing of Christ. And what, and what the psalmist is saying, that God doesn't just clean us. He actually wants to transform us. Um, I, I, I don't know how to say this. I like McDonald's, right? And um, those chicken nuggets, when they're, especially now they're five bucks for 20. I mean, how do you say no to that? That's like the best calorie bang for your buck. And it tastes so good. But what's interesting is if, you've, if, if you like junk food like me, right, it, that does taste so good. But every now and then you're like, oh, I don't fit in my pants anymore. Or maybe I should go on a diet or whatever, right? And so I've done them all. And there's this, right, what, what, if you said, have you ever done a season where you said no to sugars and starches and fat and all those unhealthy things that are, that are processed? You say, I'm only going to eat like real food, like real whole foods food, right? That's all I'm going to do. There's this weird thing that happens. 
that your mouth changes, your taste buds change. The way in which you, your mouth engages food totally changes. And you think, no, chicken nuggets are so flavorful. They're so great. But actually, they dull your taste buds. You actually can't taste real food. You only can taste, right, the, whatever sort of crack cocaine is inside of chicken nuggets. <laughs> and so, but that's what happens when, when, when God transforms us. A lot of times we don't even know what sin is going on because we're so dulled. We're so dulled to the righteousness of God, to the righteous things of God. We're so dampened the Holy Spirit that we don't even know what God is doing in us or through us or see what he's doing around us because we've just dulled that. We've just poured chicken nuggets all over the Spirit of God. And God's like, no, only organic Brussels sprouts or whatever your thing is, right? (laughs) But that is it. Transform me. Part of this process of why we do this process of confession is because we say, have mercy on me, expose me, cleanse me, and transform me. Because here's the deal. What happens is uh, evangelicals have gotten a bad rap because we think, oh, God just, you know, we get to go to heaven one day. Forgive us for our sins and then we can do whatever we want. But that is not with the spiritual formation. That is not actually what God says in Scripture. We are people who recognize our sin. We walk on this path of forgiveness and confession and transformation so that, in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from blood guilt and bloodshed, O God, for you are my God and Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, there is a broken world with people who have no voice, with poor and powerless and marginalized people in your little friend group, in the culture at large, in the world at large. And God is needing his people to be the advocates, the people who will stand in the gap and care for and offer compassion and mercy and justice to the brokenhearted and the downtrodden and the unseen because God sees them. But the only way that we can do that in a way that actually furthers the kingdom of God is we have to own our stuff first. If we do that without owning our stuff first, then we're going to have a Nathan in our life or God at the end of it all is just going to say, you were that woman. You were that man. And we want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done keeping your room clean, not well done not doing those bad things, but well done because you walk this process of transformation, I can now use you for the real things of God. For the, I can actually use you to help take the specks out of people's eyes because it is blinding them. That's the church's job and that is the church's task. And we can't do that unless we take care of our stuff first. And it ends with this. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. For my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. The sacrifice that God is longing for is not for people to be more angry. God doesn't need us to defend him. God doesn't need our anger to go along with God's anger so that people understand what's going on. That is not how it works. God desires worship and sacrifice, but not self-righteous sacrifice. God desires the sacrifice of a broken spirit in a contrite heart. No one even uses the word contrite. I had to look it up. Contrite, this feeling of remorse. Like, do we recognize that our sin, the log in our eye, is causing real damage to people, causing real hurt to people, 
real hurt to our relationships, to our walk with God. It grieves God when our log in our eye is crushing others. And are we willing to own that, there's, that we need to be contrite, that there's some grieving that needs to happen, there's some healing that needs to happen, there's some transformation that needs to happen? You see, here's the deal, that we are called to be righteous. Like, the church is called to be righteous. You have a call on your life from God to be righteous people so you can be about the righteousness of God. But God does not need right, uh, self-righteous people. God needs virtuous people, not people who can just simply virtue signal. And that is a huge difference, and it is hard work. And so we are people who God is inviting. It's hard because even David missed it. Even I missed it. Most of us miss it. Most of us are not willing to step into the presence of God and say, God, help me, expose me, show me my error. God invites us gently to that. And sometimes when we miss that over and over again, he has people like Nathan or people like my pastor Marty, who's like, you are that man. Now from church, I'm not up here. I'm not going to do that to each of you, but I'll do it if you want to have coffee. But this is your moment to actually take care of that with God. So on your little piece of paper, you wrote down a couple things that you're angry about. And the truth is, you probably have a totally noble right to be angry about those things because there is real injustice that has impacted you, that is impacting the world around you. And God actually longs for you to be used to be part of that. But before you get all ahead of yourself, are you willing to own some of the confession, some of the sin, excuse me, sin, the log in your own eye that is crushing you and others in God. So I'd love for you to just take that card over, and Michael's going to play a song. Uh, and while he's playing this next song, I'd love for you just to be quiet, reflect on the words of this song, ask God and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, say, God, reveal to me any offensive way in me. What is my sin? What is my part? What do I need to be forgiven for? And whatever that is, just write that down, and we'll see what God has for us in store.